0: Story Twelve of the Grim Smile of the Five Towns by Arnold Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Story Twelve, The Death of Simon Fuge, Part Three. Six, the tiger was very conveniently close to the Wedgwood Institution the tiger had a yard one of those long shapeless expanses of the planet partly paved with uneven cobbles and partly unsophisticated planet without which no provincial hotel can call itself respectable we came into it from the hinterland through a wooden doorway in a brick wall far off i could see one light burning we were in the centre of bursley the gold angel of his town hall rose handsomely over the roof of the hotel in the diffused moonlight but we might have been in the purlieue of some dubious establishment on the confines of a great seaport where anything may happen the yard was so deserted so mysterious so shut in so silent that really infamous characters ought to have rushed out at us from the obscurity of shadows and felled us to the earth with no other attendant phenomenon than a low groan there are places where one seems to feel how thin and brittle is the crust of law and order why one should be conscious of this in the precincts of such a house as the tiger which i was given to understand is as respectable as the parish church i do not know but i have experienced a similar feeling in the yards of other provincial hotels that were also as correct as parish churches we passed a dim fly with its shafts slanting forlornly to the ground and a wheelbarrow both looked as though they had been abandoned forever. then we came to the lamp which illuminated a door and on the door was a notice private bar billiards I am not a frequenter of convivial haunts. I should not dare to penetrate alone into a private bar. When I do enter a private bar, it is invariably under the august protection of an habitué, and it is invariably with the idea that at last I am going to see life. Often has this illusion been shattered, but each time it perfectly renewed itself. So I followed the bold Mr. Brindley into the private bar of the Tiger. It was a small and low room. I instinctively stooped, though there was no necessity for me to stoop. The bar had no peculiarity. It can be described in a breath. Three perpendicular planes. Back plane, bottles arranged exactly like books on bookshelves, middle plane the upper halves of two women dressed in tight black front plane a counter dotted with glasses and having strange areas of zinc reckon all that as the stage and the rest of the room as auditorium but the stage of a private bar is more mysterious than the stage of a theatre you are closer to it and yet it is far less approachable the edge of the counter is more sacred than the footlights impossible to imagine yourself leaping over it impossible to imagine yourself in that cloistered place behind it impossible to imagine how the priestesses got themselves into that place or that they ever leave it they are always there they are always the same you may go into a theatre when it is empty and dark but did you ever go into a private bar that was empty and dark a private bar is as eternal as the hills as changeless as the monomania of a madman as mysterious as sorcery always the same order of bottles the same tinkling the same popping the same time-tables and the same realistic pictures of frothing champagne on the walls the same advertisements on the same ashtrays on the counter the same odour that wipes your face like a towel the instant you enter and the same smiles the same gestures the same black fabric stretched to tension over the same impressive mammiferous phenomena of the same inexplicable creatures who apparently never eat and never sleep imprisoned for life in the hallowed and mystic hollow between the bottles and the zinc in a tone almost inaudible in its discretion mr brindley let fall to me as he went in this is she she was not quite the ordinary barmaid nor as i learnt afterwards was she considered to be the ordinary barmaid she was something midway in importance between the wife of the new proprietor and the younger woman who stood beside her in the cloister talking to a being that resembled a commercial traveller it was the younger woman who was the ordinary barmaid she had bright hair and the bright vacant stupidity which in my narrow experience barmaids so often catch like an infectious disease from their clients but annie brett was different i can best explain how she impressed me by saying that she had the mien of a handsome married woman of forty with a coquettish and superficially emotional past but also with a daughter who is just going into long skirts i have known one or two such women they have been beautiful they are still handsome at a distance of twelve feet they are rather effusive they think they know life when as a fact Their instinctive repugnance for any form of truth has prevented them from acquiring even the rudiments of the knowledge of life. They are secretly preoccupied by the burning question of obesity. They flatter, and they will pay any price for flattery. They are never sincere, not even with themselves. They never, during the whole of their existence, utter a sincere word, even in anger they coldly exaggerate they are always frothing at the mouth with ecstasy they adore everything including god go to church carrying a prayer-book and hymn-book in separate volumes and absolutely fawn on the daughter they are stylish and impenetrable but there is something about them very wistful and tragic in another social stratum miss annie brett may have been such a woman Without doubt, nature had intended her for the role. She was just a little ample, with broad shoulders and a large head and a lot of dark chestnut hair, a large mouth and large teeth. She had earrings, a brooch, and several rings, also a neat originality of cuffs that would not have been permitted to an ordinary barmaid as for her face there were crow's feet and a mole which had selected with infinite skill a sight on her chin and a general degeneracy of complexion but it was an effective face the little thing of twenty-three or so by her side had all the cruel advantages of youth and was not ugly but she was killed by annie brett miss brett had a maternal bust Indeed, something of the maternal resided in all of her that was visible above the zinc. She must have been about forty, that is to say, apparently older than the late Simon Fuge. Nevertheless, I could conceive her, even now, speciously picturesque in a boat at midnight on a moonstruck water. Had she been on the stage, she would have been looking forward to ingenue parts for another five years yet. Such was her durable sort of effectiveness. Yes, she indubitably belonged to the ornamental half of the universe. So this is one of them, I said to myself. I tried to be philosophical, but at heart I was profoundly disappointed. I did not know what I had expected, but I had not expected that. I was well aware that a thing written always takes on a quality which does not justly appertain to it i had not expected therefore to see an odalisque an uri an ideal toy or the remains of an ideal toy i had not expected any kind of obvious brilliancy nor a subtle charm that would haunt my memory forevermore. evermore on the other hand i had not expected the banal the perfectly commonplace and i think that miss annie brett was the most banal person that it has pleased fate to send into my life i knew that instantly she was a condemnation of simon fuge she one of the wonderful creatures who had played so large a part in the career of simon fuge Sapristi, still she was one of the wonderful creatures etc she had floated o'er the bosom of the lake with a great artist she had received his homage she had stirred his feelings she had shared with him the magic of the night i might decry her as i would she had known how to cast a spell over him she and the other one something there in her which had captured him and seemingly held him captive "'Good evening, Mr. Brindley,' she expanded. "'You're quite a stranger.' And she embraced me also in the largeness of her welcome. "'Well, it just happens,' said Mr. Brindley, "'that I was here last night. But you weren't.' Where are you now?' she exclaimed, as though learning a novel fact of the most passionate interest. "'The truth is, I had to leave the bar to Miss Stanley last night. Mrs. Moorcraft was ill.' and the baby only six weeks old you know and i wouldn't leave her no i wouldn't it was plain that in miss annie brett's opinion there was only one really capable intelligence in the tiger this glimpse of her capability this outleaping of the latent maternal in her completely destroyed for the moment my vision of her afloat on the bosom of the lake i see said mr brindley kindly Then he turned to me with characteristic abruptness. "'Well, give it a name, Mr. Loring.' Such is my simplicity that I did not immediately comprehend his meaning. For a fraction of a second I thought of the baby. Then I perceived that he was merely employing one of the sacred phrases sanctified by centuries of usage of the private bar. I had already drunk mercury, green chartreuse, and coffee i had a violent desire not to drink anything more i knew my deplorable tomorrows. still i would have drunk hot milk cold water soda-water or tea why should i not have had what i did not object to having herein lies another mystery of the private bar one could surely order tea or milk or soda-water from a woman who left everything to tend a mother with a six-week-old baby but uh, no one could not as miss annie brett smiled at me pointedly and rubbed her ringed hands and kept on smiling with her terrific mechanical effusiveness i lost all my self-control i would have resigned myself to a hundred horrible to-morrows under the omnipotent inexplicable influence of the private bar i ejaculated as though to the manner born irish it proved to have been rather clever of me showing, as it did, a due regard for convention combined with a pretty idiosyncrasy. Mr. Brindley was clearly taken aback. The idea struck him as a new one. He reflected, and then enthusiastically exclaimed, Dashed if I don't have an Irish too! And Miss Brett, delighted by this unexpected note of Irish in the long, long symphony of Scotch, charged our glasses with gusto i sipped death in my heart and rakishness in my face and gesture mr brindley raised his glass respectfully to miss annie brett and i did the same those two were evidently good friends she led the conversation with hard accustomed ease when i say hard i do not in the least mean unsympathetic but her sympathetic quality was toughened by excessive usage like the hand of a charwoman she spoke of the vagaries of the town-hall clock the health of mr brindley's children the price of coal the incidents of the annual wakes the bankruptcy of the draper next door and her own sciatica all in the same tone of metallic tender solicitude mr brindley adopted an entirely serious attitude towards her if i had met him there and nowhere else i should have taken him for a dignified mediocrity little better than a fool but with just enough discretion not to give himself away i said nothing i was shy i always am shy in a bar out of her cold cold roving eye miss brett watched me trying to add me up and not succeeding she must have perceived however that i was not like a fish in water There was a pause in the talk, due, I think, to Miss Annie Brett's preoccupation with what was going on between Miss Slaney, the ordinary barmaid, and her commercial traveller. The commercial traveller, if he was one, was reading something from a newspaper to Miss Slaney in an indistinct murmur, and with laughter in his voice. "'By the way,' said Mr. Brindley, "'you used to know Simon Fuge, didn't you?' old simon fuge said miss brett yes after the brewery company took the bluebell at cauldron over from him i used to be there he would come in sometimes such a nice queer old man well, i mean the son? said mr brindley oh yes she answered i knew young mr simon too a slight hesitation and then of course another hesitation uh, why oh, nothing said mr brindley only he's dead you don't mean to say he's dead she exclaimed day before yesterday in italy said mr brindley ruthlessly miss annie brett's manner certainly changed it seemed almost to become natural and unecstatic. i suppose it will be in the papers she ventured it's in the london paper well i never she muttered a long time i should think since he was in this part of the world said mr brindley when did you last see him? He was exceedingly skilful, I considered. She put the back of her hand over her mouth, and bending her head slightly, and lowering her eyelids, gazed reflectively at the counter. It was once when a lot of us went to Ilham, she answered quietly. The St. Luke's lot, you know. Oh, cried Mr. Brindley, apparently startled, the St. Luke's lot. Yes. How came he to go with you? HE DIDN'T GO WITH US. HE WAS THERE. STOPPING THERE, I SUPPOSE. WHY, I BELIEVE I REMEMBER HEARING SOMETHING ABOUT THAT, SAID MR. BRINDLEY CUNNINGLY. DIDN'T HE TAKE YOU OUT IN A BOAT? A VERY FAINT, DARK, CRIMSON SPREAD OVER THE FACE OF MISS ANNIE BRETT. IT COULD NOT BE CALLED A BLUSH, BUT IT WAS AS LIKE A BLUSH AS WAS POSSIBLE TO HER. THE PHENOMENON, AS I COULD SEE FROM HIS EYES, GAVE MR. BRINDLEY ANOTHER SHOCK. yes she replied sally was there as well then a silence during which the commercial traveller could be heard reading from the newspaper when was that gently asked mr brindley don't ask me when it was mr brindley she answered nervously it's ever so long ago what did he die of don't know miss annie brett opened her mouth to speak and did not speak there were tears in her reddened eyes i felt very awkward and i think mr brindley also felt awkward but i was glad those moist eyes caused me a thrill there was after all some humanity in miss annie brett yes she had after all floated on the bosom of the lake with simon fuge the least romantic of persons she had yet felt romance if she had touched simon fuge simon fuge had touched her she had memories once she had lived i pictured her younger i sought in her face the soft remains of youthfulness i invented languishing poses for her in the boat my imagination was equal to the task of seeing her as simon fuge saw her i did so see her i recalled simon fuge's excited description of the long night in the boat and i could reconstitute the night from end to end and there the identical creature stood before me, the creature who had set fire to Simon Fuge, one of the wonderful creatures of the Gazette, aging, hardened, banal, but momentarily restored to the empire of romance by those unshed, glittering tears. As an experience, it was worth having. She could not speak, and we did not i heard the commercial traveller reading the motion was therefore carried by twenty-five votes to nineteen and the countess of shell promised that the whole question of the employment of barmaids should be raised at the next meeting of the bwts there what do you think of that miss annie bread moved quickly towards the commercial traveller i'll tell you what i think of it she said with ecstatic resentment i think it's just shameful Why should the Countess of Shell want to rob a lot of respectable young ladies of their living? I can tell you they're just as respectable as the Countess of Shell is. Yes, and perhaps more, by all accounts. I think people do well to call her interfering Iris. When she's robbed them of their living, what does she expect them to do? Is she going to keep them? Then what does she expect them to do?' the commercial traveller was inept enough to offer a jocular reply and then he found himself involved in the morass of the whole question he and we also were obliged to hear in immense detail miss annie brett's complete notions of the movement for the abolition of barmaids the subject was heavy on her mind and she lifted it off simon fuge was relinquished he dropped like a stone into the pool of forgetfulness and yet strange as it seems she was assuredly not sincere in the expression of her views on the question of barmaids she held no real views she merely persuaded herself that she held them when the commercial traveller who was devoid of sense pointed out that it was not proposed to rob anybody of a livelihood and that existent barmaids would be permitted to continue to grace the counters of their adoption she grew frostily vicious the commercial traveller decided to retire and play billiards mr brindley and i in our turn departed i was extremely disappointed by this sequel ah breathed mr brindley when we were outside in front of the town hall she was quite right about that clock after that we turned silently into a long illuminated street which rose gently the boxes of light were flashing up and down it but otherwise it seemed to be quite deserted mr brindley filled a pipe and lit it as we walked the way in which that man kept the match alight in a fresh breeze made me envious i could conceive myself rivalling his exploits in cigarette making the purchase of rare books the interpretation of music even for a wager the drinking of beer but i knew that i should never be able to keep a match alight in a breeze he threw the match into the mud and in the mud it continued miraculously to burn with a large flame as though still under his magic dominion there are some things that baffle the reasoning faculty well i said she must have been a pretty woman once pretty by god he replied she was beautiful she was considered the finest piece in hambridge at one time And let me tell you, we're supposed to have more than our share of good looks in the five towns. What? The women, you mean? Yes. And she never married? No. Nor uh, anything? Oh, no, he said carelessly. But you don't mean to tell me she's never— I was just going to exclaim, but I did not. I said, and it's her sister who is Mrs. Colclough? Yes. seemed to be either meditative or disinclined to talk. However, my friends have sometimes hinted to me that when my curiosity is really aroused, I am capable of indiscretion. So one sister rattles about in an expensive motor-car, and the other serves behind a bar, I observed. He glanced at me i expect it's a bit difficult for you to understand he answered but you must remember you're in a democratic district you told me once you knew exeter well this isn't a cathedral town it's about a century in front of any cathedral town in the world why my good sir there's practically no such thing as class distinction here both my grandfathers were working potters koklo's father was a joiner who finished up as a builder if kokla makes money and chooses to go to paris and get the best motor-car he can why in haiti shouldn't his wife ride in it if he is fond of music and can play like the devil that isn't his sister-in-law's fault is it his wife was a dressmaker at least she was a dressmaker's assistant if she suits him what's the matter but i never suggest Oh, excuse me he stopped me speaking with careful and slightly exaggerated calmness i think you did if the difference in the situations of the two sisters didn't strike you as very extraordinary what did you mean and isn't it extraordinary i demanded it wouldn't be considered so in any reasonable society he insisted the fact is my good sir you haven't yet quite got rid of exeter i do believe this place will do you good why damn it! coquelot didn't marry both sisters you think he might keep the other sister well he might but suppose his wife had half a dozen sisters would he keep them all i can tell you we're just like the rest of the world we find no difficulty whatever in spending all the money we make i dare say kokla would be ready enough to keep his sister-in-law i've never asked him but i'm perfectly certain that his sister-in-law wouldn't be kept not much you don't know these women down here my good sir she's earned her living at one thing or another all her life and i reckon she'll keep on earning it till she drops she is without exception the most exasperating female i ever came across and that's saying something but i will give her that credit she's mighty independent how exasperating i asked surprised to hear this from him i don't know but she is if she was my wife i should kill her one night don't you know what i mean yes i quite agree with you i said but you seem to be awfully good friends with her no use being anything else no woman that it ever pleased providence to construct is going to frighten me away from the draught burton that you can get at the tiger besides she can't help it she was born like that she talks quite ordinarily i remarked oh it isn't what she says particularly it's her either you like her or you don't like her now kokla thinks she's all right in fact, he admires her. There's one thing I said. She jolly nearly cried to night. Purely mechanical, said Mr. Brindley with cruel curtness. What seemed to me singular was that the relations which had existed between Miss Annie Brett and Simon Fuge appeared to have no interest whatever for Mr. Brindley. He had not even referred to them. You were just beginning to draw her out, I ventured no he replied i thought i'd just see what she'd say no one ever did draw that woman out i had completely lost my vision of her in the boat but somehow that declaration of his no one ever did draw that woman out partially restored the vision to me it seemed to invest her with agreeable mystery and the other sister uh, mrs coqla i questioned i'm taking you to see her as fast as i can he answered his tone implied further, "'I've just humoured one of your whims, and now for the other. But tell me something about her. She's the best bridge player—woman, that is—in Bursley, but she will only play every other night for fear the habit should get hold of her. There you've got her.' "'Younger than Miss Brett?' "'Younger,' said Mr. Brindley. "'She isn't the same sort of person, is she?' she is not said mr brindley and his tone implied thank god for it very soon afterwards at the top of a hill he drew me into the garden of a large house which stood back from the road seven it was quite a different sort of house from mr brindley's one felt that immediately on entering the hall which was extensive there was far more money and considerably less taste at large in that house than in the other i noticed carved furniture that must have been bought with a coarse and a generous hand and on the walls a diptych by marcus stone portraying the course of true love clingingly draped it was just like exeter or onslow square but the middle-aged servant who received us struck at once the same note as had sounded so agreeably at mr brindley's she seemed positively glad to see us our arrival seemed to afford her a peculiar and violent pleasure as though the hospitality which we were about to accept was in some degree hers too she robbed us of our hats with ecstasy then mr clokela appeared delighted you've come mr loring he said shaking my hand again he said it with fervour he obviously was delighted the exercise of hospitality was clearly the chief joy of his life at least if he had a greater it must have been something where keenness was excessive beyond the point of pleasure as some joys are how do bob your missus has just come he was still in his motoring clothes Mr. Rendley, observing my gaze transiently on the Marcus Stones, said, I know what you're looking for. You're looking for Saul's Soul's Awakening. We don't keep it in the window. You'll see it inside. Bob's always rotting me about my pictures, Mr. Cochla smiled indulgently. He seemed big enough to eat his friend, and his rich, heavy voice rolled like thunder about the hall. Come along in, will you? half a second all mr brindley called in a conspiratorial tone and turned to me tell him the limerick you know the one about the hayrick mr brindley nodded there were three heads close together for a space of twenty seconds or so and then a fearful explosion happened the unique tremendous laughter of mr cochlea which went off like a charge of melanite and staggered the furniture now now a feminine voice protested from an unseen interior i was taken to the drawing-room an immense apartment with an immense piano black as midnight in it at the further end two women were seated close together in conversation and i distinctly heard the name fuge one of them was mrs brindley in a hat The other, a very big and stout woman, in an elaborate crimson garment, that resembled a tea-gown, rose and came to meet me with extended hand. "'My wife, Mr. Loring,' said Mr. Oliver Coakla. "'So glad to meet you,' she said, beaming on me with all her husband's pleasure. "'Come and sit between Mrs. Brentley and me, near the window, and keep us in order. Don't you find it very close? There are at least a hundred cats in the garden.' one instantly perceived that ceremonial stiffness could not exist in the same atmosphere with mrs oliver Cochla. during the whole time i spent in her house there was never the slightest pause in the conversation mrs oliver Cocla prevented nobody from talking but she would gladly use up every odd remnant of time that was not employed by others no scrap was too small for her so this is the other one i said to myself well give me this one certainly there was a resemblance between the two in the general formation of the face and the shape of the shoulders but it is astonishing that two sisters can differ as these did with a profound and vital difference in mrs Cocla, there was no coquetry no trace of that more than half suspicious challenge to a man that one feels always in the type to which her sister belonged the notorious battle of the sexes was assuredly carried on by her in a spirit of frank muscular gaiety she could i am sure do her share of fighting put her in a boat on the bosom of the lake under starlight and she would not by a gesture a tone a glance convey mysterious nothings to you a male she would not be subtly changed by the sensuous influences of the situation she would always be the same plump and earthly piece of candour even if she were in love with you she would not convey mysterious nothings in such circumstances if she were in love with you she would most clearly convey unmysterious and solid somethings i was convinced that the contributing cause to the presence of the late simon fuge in the boat on illam lake on the historic night was annie the superior barmaid and not sally of the automobile but Miss coqla if not beautiful was a very agreeable creation her amplitude gave at first sight an exaggerated impression of her age but this departed after more careful inspection she could not have been more than thirty she was very dark with plenteous and untidy black hair thick eyebrows and a slight moustache her eyes were very vivacious and her gestures despite that bulk quick and graceful she was happy her ideals were satisfied it was probably happiness that had made her stout her massiveness was apparently no grief to her she had fallen into the carelessness which is so often the pitfall of women who being stout are content how do missus mr brindley greeted her and to his wife how do missus but look here bright star this gadding about is all very well but what about those precious kids of yours none of em dead yet i hope oh don't be silly bob i've been over to your house mrs cookla put in of course it isn't mumps. the child's as right as rain so i brought mary back with me well said mr brindley for a woman who's never had any children your knowledge of children beggar's description "'What you aren't sure you know about them "'isn't knowledge. "'However—' "'Listen,' Mrs. Coakley replied, "'with a delightful throwing down of the glove. "'I'll bet you a level sovereign "'that child hasn't got the mumps. "'So there. "'And Oliver will guarantee to pay you.' I said Mr. Coakley, "'I'll back my wife any day.' "'Don't bet, Bob,' "'Mrs. Brindley enjoined her husband excitedly, "'in her high treble. "'I won't,' said Mr. Brindley.' now let's sit down mrs coakla addressed me with particular confidential grace we three exactly filled the sofa i have often sat between two women but never with such calm unreserved unapprehensive comfortableness as i experienced between mrs coakla and mrs brindley it was just as if i had known them for years you'll make a mess of that all said mr brindley the other two men were at some distance in front of a table on which were two champagne bottles and five glasses and a plate of cakes well i said to myself i'm not going to have any champagne anyhow mercury green chartreuse irish whiskey, and then champagne and a morning's hard work tomorrow. no plop a cork flew up and bounced against the ceiling mr Cochla carefully emptied the bottle into the glasses of which mr brindley seized two and advanced with one in either hand for the women it was the host who offered a glass to me no thanks very much I, i really can't i said in a very firm tone my tone was so firm that it startled them they glanced at each other with alarmed eyes like simple people confronted by an inexplicable phenomenon but look here, mister, said Mr. Cochlepane. We've got this out specially for you. You don't suppose this is our usual tipple, do you? I yielded. I could do no less than sacrifice myself to their enchanting, instinctive kindness of heart. I shall be dead to-morrow, I said to myself, but I shall have lived to-night. They were relieved, but I saw that I had given them a shock from which they could not instantaneously recover therefore i began with a long pull as you reassure them mrs brindley has been telling me that simon fuge is dead said mrs coqla brightly as though mrs brindley had been telling her that the price of mutton had gone down i perceived that those two had been talking over simon fuge after their fashion oh yes i responded have you got that newspaper in your pocket mr loring asked mrs brindley i had no i said feeling in my pockets i must have left it at your house well she said that's strange i looked for it to show it to mrs coqla but i couldn't see it this was not surprising i did not want mrs Cokla to read the journalistic obituary until she had given me her own obituary of fuge it must be somewhere about i said and to mrs coqla i suppose you knew him pretty well oh bless you no i only met him once at Ilham, yes what are you going to do oliver her husband was opening the piano bob and i are just going to have another smack at that brahms you don't expect us to listen do you i expect you to do what pleases you missus said he i should be a bigger fool than i am if i expected anything else then he smiled at me no just go on talking all and i'll drown you easy enough quite short back in five minutes The two men placed each his wine-glass on the space on the piano designed for a candlestick, lighted cigars, and sat down to play. "'Yes,' Mrs. Coakler resumed in a lower, more confidential tone, to the accompaniment of the music. "'You see, there was a whole party of us there, and Mr. Fuge was staying at the hotel. And, of course, he knew several of us. And he took you out in a boat? Me and Annie?' yes just as it was getting dusk he came up to us and asked us if we'd go for a row i can hear him asking us now i asked him if he could row and he was quite angry so we went to quieten him she paused and then laughed sally mrs brindley protested you know he's dead Yes, she admitted the rightness of the protest, but I can't help it. I was just thinking how he got his feet wet in pushing the boat off. She laughed again. When we were safely off, someone came down to the shore and shouted to Mr. Fuge to bring the boat back. You know his quick way of talking. Here she began to imitate Fuge. I quarreled with the man this boat belongs to. Awful feud. Fact is, I'm in a hostile country here. And a lot more like that. It seemed he had quarrelled with everybody in Ilham. He wasn't sure if the landlord of the hotel would let him sleep there again. He told us all about all his quarrels, until he dropped one of the oars. I shall never forget how funny he looked in the moonlight when he dropped the oar. That's your fault, he said. You make me talk too much about myself, and I get excited. He kept striking matches to look for the oar, and turning the boat round and round with the other oar last match he said we shall never see land to-night then he found the oar again he considered we were saved then he began to tell us about his aunt you know i've no business to be here i came down from london for my aunt's funeral and here i am in a boat at night with two pretty girls he said the funeral had taught him one thing and that was that black neckties were the only possible sort of necktie He said the greatest worry of his life had always been neckties, but he wouldn't have to worry any more, and so his aunt hadn't died for nothing. I assure you he kept on talking about the neckties. I assure you, Mr. Loring, I went to sleep. At least I dozed, and when I woke up he was still talking about neckties. But then his feet began to get cold. I suppose it was because they were wet. The way he grumbled about his feet being cold— i remember he turned his coat collar up he wanted to get on shore and walk but he'd taken us a long way up the lake by that time and he saw we were absolutely lost so he put the oars in the boat and stood up and stamped his feet it might have upset the boat how did it end i inquired well annie and i caught the train but only just you see it was a special train so they kept it for us otherwise we should have been in a nice fix. So you have special trains in these parts? Why, of course, it was the annual outing of the teachers of St. Luke's Sunday School and their friends, you see, so we had a special train. At this point the duettist came to the end of a movement and Mr. Brindley leaned over to us from his stool, glass in hand. The railway company practically owns Ilham, he explained, and so they run it for all their worth. They made the lake to feed the canals when they bought the canals from the canal company. It's an artificial lake, and the railway runs alongside it. A very good scheme of the company's. They started out to make Ilham a popular resort, and they've made it a popular resort, what with special trains and things. But try to get a special train to any other place on their rotten system, and you'll soon see. How big is the lake? I asked. How long is it all? he demanded of Coakla. A couple of miles? Not it, about a mile. Adagio. They proceeded with Brahms. He ran with you all the way to the station, didn't he? Mrs. Brindley suggested to Mrs. Coakla. I should just say he did, Mrs. Coakla concurred. He wanted to get warm, and then he was awfully afraid lest we should miss it. I thought you were on the lake practically all night, I exclaimed all night well i don't know what you call all night but i was back in bursley before eleven o'clock i'm sure i then contrived to discover the gazette in an unsearched pocket and i gave it to mrs coakla to read mrs brindley looked over her shoulder there was no slightest movement of depreciation on mrs coakla's part she amiably smiled as she perused the gazette's version of fuge's version of the lake episode Here was the attitude of the woman whose soul is like crystal. It seemed to me that most women would have blushed, or dissented, or simulated anger, or failed to conceal vanity. But Mrs. Cochla might have been reading a fairy tale, for any emotion she displayed. Yes, she said blandly, from the things Annie used to tell me about him sometimes, I should say that that was just how he would talk. They seemed to have thought quite a lot of him in London then oh rather i said i suppose your sister knew him pretty well annie i don't know she knew him i distinctly observed a certain self-consciousness in mrs as she made this reply mrs brindley had risen and with wifely attentiveness was turning over the music page for her husband soon afterwards for me the night began to grow fantastic it took on the colour of a gigantic adventure I do not suppose that either Mr. Brindley or Mr. Coakley, or the other person who presently arrived, regarded it as anything but a pleasant conviviality. But to a man of my constitution and habits, it was an almost incredible occurrence. The other person was the book-collecting doctor. He arrived with a discreet tap on the window at midnight to spend the evening. Mrs. Brindley had gone home, and Mrs. Coakley had gone to bed. The book-collecting doctor refused Champagne. He was, in fact, very rude to Champagne in general. He had whiskey, and those astonishing individuals, Messieurs of Brindley and Cochle, secretly convinced of the justice of the attack on Champagne, had whisky too. And that still most astonishing individual, Loring of the BM, joined them. It was the hour of limericks limericks were demanded for the diversion of the doctor and i furnished them we then listened to the tale of the doctor's experiences that day amid the sturdy natural-minded population of a muling village not far from bursley seldom have i had such a bath in the pure fluid of human nature all sense of time was lost i lived in an eternity i could not suggest to my host that we should depart i could however decline more whisky and i could given the chance discourse with gay despair concerning the miserable wreck that i should be on the morrow in consequence of this high living i asked them how i could be expected in such a state to judge delicate points of expertise in earthenware i gave them a brief sketch of my customary evening and left them to compare it with that evening the doctor perceived that i was serious he gazed at me with pity as if to say poor frail southern organism it ought to be in bed with nothing inside it but tea what he did actually say was you come round to my place i'll soon put you right can you stop me from having a headache tomorrow? i eagerly asked i think so he said with calm northern confidence at some later hour mr brindley and i went round mr cochlea would not come he bade me good-bye as his wife had done with the most extraordinary kindness the most genuine sorrow at quitting me the most genuine pleasure in the hope of seeing me again there are three thousand books in this room i said to myself as i stood in the doctor's electrically lit library what price this for a dog mr brindley drew my attention to an aristocratic fox-terrier that lay on the hearth well titus is it sleepy well well how many firsts has he won doctor six said the doctor i'll just fix you up to begin with he turned to me after i had been duly fixed up this'll help you to sleep and this'll placate your god said the doctor I saw to my intense surprise that another evening was to be instantly superimposed on the evening at Mr. Cochla's. The doctor and Mr. Brindley carefully and deliberately lighted long cigars and sank deeply into immense armchairs. And so I imitated them as well as I could in my feeble southern way. We talked books. We just simply enumerated books without end praising or damning them, and arranged authors in neat pews, like cattle in classes, at an agricultural show. No pastime is more agreeable to people who have the book disease, and none more quickly fleets the hours, and none is more delightfully futile. Ages elapsed, and suddenly, like a gun discharging, Mr. Brindley said, "'We must go.' Of all things that happened, this was the most astonishing." we did go by the way doc said mr brindley in the doctor's wide porch i forgot to tell you that simon fuge is dead is he said the doctor yes you've got a couple of his etchings haven't you no said the doctor i had but i sold them several months ago oh said mr brindley negligently i didn't know well so long we had a few hundred yards to walk down the silent wide street where the gas-lamps were burning with the strange endless patience that gas-lamps have the stillness of a provincial town at night is quite different from that of london we might have been the only persons alive in england except for a feeling of unreality a feeling that the natural order of things had been disturbed by some necromancer i was perfectly well the same morning at breakfast as the doctor had predicted i should be when i expressed to mr brindley my stupefaction at this happy sequel he showed a polite but careless inability to follow my line of thought it appeared that he was always well at breakfast even when he did stay up a little later than usual it appeared further that he always breakfasted at a quarter to nine and read the manchester guardian during the meal to which his wife did or did not descend according to the moods of the nursery and that he reached his office at a quarter to ten that morning the mood of the nursery was apparently unpropitious he and i were alone i begged him not to pretermit his guardian but to examine it and give me the news he agreed scarcely unwilling there's a paragraph in the london correspondence about fuge he announced from behind the paper what do they say about him oh, nothing in particular now i want to ask you something i said I had been thinking a good deal about the sisters and Simon Fuge, and in spite of everything that I had heard, in spite even of the facts that the lake had been dug by a railway company, and that the excursion to the lake had been an excursion of Sunday school teachers and their friends, I was still haunted by certain notions concerning Simon Fuge and Annie Brett annie brett's flush her unshed tears and the self-consciousness shown by mrs coakla when i had pointedly mentioned her sister's name in connection with simon fuges these were surely indications and then the doctor's recitals of manners in the immediate neighbourhood of bursley went to support my theory that even in staffordshire life was very much life what demanded mr Brindley was Miss Brett ever Simon Fuge's mistress. At that moment, Mrs. Brindley, miraculously fresh and smiling, entered the room. Wife, said Mr. Brindley, without giving her time to greet us, what do you think he's just asked me? I don't know. He's just asked me if Annie Brett was ever Simon Fuge's mistress. She sank into a chair. Annie Brett? She began to laugh gently. Oh, Mr. Loring, you really are too funny she yielded to her emotions it may be said that she laughed as they can laugh in the five towns she cried she had to wipe away the tears of laughter what on earth made you think so she inquired after recovery i had an idea i said lamely he always made out that one of those two sisters was so much to him and i knew it couldn't be mrs ''Well,'' she said, ''ask anybody down here, anybody, and see what they'll say.'' ''No,'' Mr. Brindley put in, ''don't go about asking anybody. You might get yourself disliked. But you may take it, it isn't true.'' ''Most certainly,'' his wife concurred with seriousness. ''We reckon to know something about Simon Fuge down here,'' Mr. Brinkley said, ''also about the famous Annie.'' He must have flirted with her a good bit, anyhow, I said. Oh, flirt, ejaculated Mr. Brindley. I had a sudden, dazzling vision of the great truth that the people of the five towns have no particular use for half-measures in any department of life, so I accepted the final judgment with meekness. 9 i returned to london that evening my work done and the municipality happily flattered by my judgment of the slip decorated dishes mr brindley had found time to meet me at the midday meal and he had left his office earlier than usual in order to help me to drink his wife's afternoon tea About an hour later he picked up my little bag, and said he should accompany me to the little station in the midst of the desert of cinders and broken crockery, and even see me as far as Canipe, where I had to take the London Express. No, there were no half-measures in the five towns. Mrs. Brindley stood on her doorstep with her eldest infant on her shoulders, and waved us off. The infant cried, expressing his own and his mother's grief at losing a guest. It seemed as if people are born hospitable in the five towns. We had not walked more than a hundred yards up the road when a motor-car thundered down upon us from the opposite direction. It was Mr. Colclaw's, and Mr. Colclaw was driving it. Mr. Brindley stopped his friend with the authoritative gesture of a policeman. "'Where are you going, all?' home lad sorry you're leaving us so soon mr loring you're mistaken my boy said mr brindley you're just going to run us down to Knipe station first i must look slippy then said mr coakla you can look as slippy as you like said mr brindley in another fifteen seconds we were in the car and it had turned round and was speeding toward Knipe. a feverish journey we passed electric cars every minute and for three miles were continually twisting round the tails of ponderous creaking and excessively deliberate carts that dropped a trail of small coal or huge barrels on wheels that dripped something like the finest devonshire cream or brewer's drays that left nothing behind them save a luscious odor of malt it was a breathless slither over unctuous black mud through a long winding canon of brown-red houses and shops, with a glimpse here and there of a grey-green park, a canal, or a football field. I daren't hurry, said Mr. Coakla, setting us down at the station. I was afraid of a skid. He had not spoken during the transit. Don't put on side, all, said Mr. Brindley. What time did you get up this morning? eight o'clock lad i was at the works at nine he flew off to escape my thanks and mr brindley and i went into the station owing to the celerity of the automobile we had half an hour to wait we spent it chiefly at the bookstall while we were there the extra special edition of the staffordshire signal affectionately termed the local rag by its readers arrived and we watched a newsboy affix its poster to a board the poster ran thus hambridge rates lively meeting knipe f c new centre forward all winners and s p now close by this poster was the poster of the daily telegraph and among the items offered by the daily telegraph was death of simon fuge i could not forbear pointing out to mr brindley the difference between the two posters a conversation ensued and amid the rumblings of trains and the rough stir of the platform we got back again to simon fuge and mr brindley's tone gradually grew if not acrid a little impatient after all he said rates are rates especially in hambridge and lemme tell you that last season knight football club jolly nearly got thrown out of the first league the constitution of the team for this next season why damn it! it's a question of national importance you don't understand these things if Knight football club was put into the league's second division ten thousand homes would go into mourning who the devil was simon Fuge? they joke with such extraordinarily seriousness in the five towns that one is somehow bound to pretend that they are not joking so i replied he was a great artist and this is his native district surely you ought to be proud of him he may have been a great artist said mr brindley or he may not but for us he was simply a man who came of a family that had a bad reputation for talking too much and acting the goat well i said we shall see in fifty years that's just what we shan't said he we shall be where simon fuge is dead however perhaps we are proud of him but you don't expect us to show it to you that's not our style he performed the quasi-winking phenomenon with his eyes it was his final exhibition of it to me a strange place i reflected as i ate my dinner in the dining-car with the pressure of mr brindley's steely clasp still affecting my right hand and the rich honest cordiality of his au revoir in my heart a place that is passing strange and i thought further he may have been a boaster and a chatterer and a man who suffered from cold feet at the wrong moments and the five towns may have got the better of him now but that portrait of the little girl in the wedgewood institution is waiting there right in the middle of the five towns and one day the five towns will have to give it best they can say what they like what eyes the fellow had when he was in the right company End of Part 3